So it's summer vacation and I come home pretty much every day to see my kids glued to their electronic devices. No matter how much I tell them they're not allowed to go on them for more than an hour um, or whatever limitations I set on them, I come home and somehow they're stuck to the screen. They don't look up. They don't see me. They don't say hello. And they have these little plastic grins glued to their faces. So my question is, are they addicted to their device? And is the same thing going on in their brains that would happen if they were addicted to any other substance? I'm Dr. Neha Bartuk, and this is Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. So it's still not exactly clear what is going on in the brain when we are experiencing pleasure, whether it's pleasure to natural things in our environment or pleasure from certain substances that probably are not very good for us. What we do know is that there's probably some surge of chemical signaling in our brain, natural opioids like endorphins, and then chemical messengers like neurotransmitters in certain parts of the brain that are released and trigger some sort of pleasurable response. Dr. Brett Stecka is editorial director for Medscape Neurology and Medscape Psychiatry. He's going to help us understand what's going on in the brain when we're experiencing certain moods or when we have an addiction to something. I'd love it if you could talk us through dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. What are we saying when we're saying these things? Sure. So there are really, as you just said, two main categories of neuroactive or psychoactive, if you prefer, uh, chemicals in the brain and the the body and the nervous system. You have neurotransmitters, which are chemicals that allow our brain cells or our neurons uh, to talk to each other, to communicate, uh, you know, and allow us to basically do anything we can do, sense, feel, move, speak dance. Um, and then you have neurohormones and the two can be the same. There's, there's some overlap. These you know, hormones are chemicals released into the bloodstream that circulate through the body and have further uh, effects further afield. A lot of compounds do both. Um, for example, you take catecholamines as one category uh, of neurotransmitter. That's, that's your dopamine, which a lot of us have heard of, norepinephrine and epinephrine or adrenaline. Um, these are produced in the adrenal gland that sits on top of the kidney, but you know, dopamine and norepinephrine are also produced in the brain. So they have a wide range of effects. Um, but in the brain, you know, dopamine, for example, is incredibly important in movement um, in certain parts of the brain. So if you have impaired dopamine function, which is the key pathophysiology behind uh, Parkinson's, for example, you know, you're going to have impaired movement. But dopamine also has many other functions in terms of of reward, which we'll probably get to with the addiction. And, and, you know, norepinephrine as well. It has effects all over the body, but it's it's also responsible for our fight and flight reaction, as as is adrenaline, epinephrine. Um, So these compounds have many different uses. And when they're exclusively in our nervous system, we call them neurotransmitters. When they're pumping around the bottom, we call them neurohormones uh, in many cases. That's sort of a summary, but really our, our brain and body's function at the belay of these of these particular chemicals. And it's a lot more complicated as we can get into than, say, serot- low serotonin causes depression or high dopamine causes bipolar or addiction. It, it's, 
the systems are much more complicated than that. I think things have been distilled down into those simplifications over the years in terms of the chemical imbalance hypothesis. Uh, but yes, if we want to get into it, we can talk about how it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, no, I think that that is so key for us to remember as we get into this discussion is that we're not talking about an X equals Y kind of calculation. These chemicals are doing lots of different things in our brains and, and some, as you mentioned, throughout our body. But so let's talk a little bit about reward and how these chemicals work um, with regard to the reward centers in our brain. Yeah, so we talk about the reward system or the reward circuitry a lot. Um, this is a network of brain regions with names like nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, many different uh, amygdalas of our common one. They, they all work together and appear to be firing in some sort of concert when we experience or anticipate a reward. And I think dopamine gets the, the lead marquee when it comes to the reward center. Um, and it, and it, as it should, but once again, it's probably more complicated than just a surge in dopamine, which I think gets thrown around a lot as the cause of reward. But what I think what's interesting is when you look at addictions of any kind, whether it's, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, there is a common mechanism, even, you know, video games, uh, you know, you do see these, you do see dopamine as being heavily involved in, in this reward response, which at its extreme can become an addiction. But the interesting thing is you get you get this surge in dopamine during the anticipatory phase, like looking forward to this reward. Like if you if you look at mouse studies and I believe human studies with, with uh, MRI, you, you see this escalation of dopamine in the brain, certain parts of the brain, as people are anticipating the reward, as the mouse is anticipating its, you know, whatever it's getting, some kind of a mouse treat. Uh, and then the moment you get the reward, the dopamine plummets. And all of a sudden you want more because what you want, what you were feeling, what you were enjoying is that dopamine pulsing through these centers in your brain. It's not the actual reward that does that. So that's, that's sort of the underlying neurological basis behind addiction. Once you get what you want, you're not feeling that reward anymore. So it's like, oh, I need to take another dose of whatever it is. I need another drink. Um, and that's how you spiral down the cascade of chemical dependency and constantly needing to boost that dose and revisit whatever it is because it's really the anticipation and i think that's that sort of parallels what a lot of psychology studies have shown that in terms of happiness the anticipation of say looking forward to a vacation is much more gratifying than just going out and buying something and all of a sudden you have something new it's really the anticipation of waiting for a reward that is the exciting part that's so interesting and you know for me the anticipation is always like finishing the vacation when I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> nothing horrible happened. Okay. I enjoyed that vacation. True. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like another sort of reward. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the part that I'm anticipating. As right, a mom right. of, of three young kids, I can certainly say that that's, I'm like, did anyone get sick or that's what right, I'm right. worried about the whole time. And that's your uh, reward. <laughs> <laughs> we made it, that we're home. Yep. That's what I look forward to. Um, that, you know, it's so interesting when you say all these things. Because I think sometimes our anecdotal thoughts can kind of are really aligned with with the studies and what you're saying. So one of the things my dad always said growing up, and if you listen to this podcast, my dad is like always there in the background talking through me. But he would always say when you want something, when you're kind of craving it, that's the day 
that you don't have it. So it's fine to, you know, do any of these things, watch TV, have a drink, um, you know, listen to music or, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. But the day that you're like, I must get home so I can do this is the day that you need to say, all right, I'm going to take a break. Talk me through that. That is a great point, because if you look at the I think what most psychiatrists would call addiction is once it, yeah, it crosses a certain point where it begins to take over aspects of your life. You know, yeah, you can go out and have a couple of drinks with friends and that's it. You're, you go home and that was fun. It was a fun experience. But if, yeah, if, if you want to rush home because you need to have that third drink, that's a warning sign, you know, not always terrible, but it's a warning sign. And then if, um, if, if that sort of behavior becomes detrimental to an aspect of your life, like relationships or, you know, friends or romantic, whatever it is, or your, your job, that's where you start inching into your DSM certified, uh, addictive territory. If it interferes and becomes a priority in your life over, you know, perhaps what should be your priorities, whatever's going on chemically, I think clinically that's what would define an addiction. I'm, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but that's generally how I think of it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that it's interesting to kind of think about some things where we know, like ingesting a substance activates certain brain chemicals. So whether that's cannabis and, and those receptors versus, you know, alcohol versus nicotine. Um, and then some of the other things that you've talked about, which are just more environmental exposures. So can you kind of help talk us through some of those differences and what's happening in the brain with, with the chemicals? The research is showing that it's potentially is the exact same phenomenon. You can pick your addiction of choice, and social media is certainly an obvious one. There's a whole other discussion to be had about the mental health effects of, of social media, especially on children and teenagers. But, you know, honestly, the, the idea of getting these likes and these clicks, it's really not that different uh, neurologically than, you know, say, alcohol. There's a deeper psychological component in terms of being accepted, and that's a different discussion. But it's it's the same thing where if you get you get 50 likes on your on your TikTok you're getting that same surge and if you're waiting for those likes you're probably anxious and and there's this anticipatory anxiety but also excitement and you know i think that's what's going on with with kids especially and and adults and i've been guilty of it too when i post something on instagram it's like well i hope we get a lot of likes on this stupid picture but I, th I think that that is what's happening. And it's this need, it's both like a, a need for acceptance in the sort of the psychological realm of, of it. And it's also probably literally the same dopamine response in our reward center um, that provides this, this new digital reward that is, is relatively young. And we're still seeing how that's going to play out long term. Do you have young kids? We just had our first baby a year ago. She just turned a year. Oh, my God. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So you're more in the oxytocin phase of this. Okay, I have an 11-year-old. Everything that you're saying is so resonating. We haven't allowed her to do social media yet, but it's almost the same thing with her little iPad and just watching random YouTube clips. I mean, the girl does not wake up when it's a day for school. But when it's a weekend, she wakes up early, she has her breakfast, and she's grabbed her little electronic, and she's somewhere where we can't find her. So it's activating these dopamine, the dopamine pathway. So what can we do? How can we help these children? I think that's the big question. For one, I find it fascinating that children, even as young as one and two, can use these devices. And I think that's part of Steve Jobs' uh, master plan. 
Um, <laughs> but and I've seen many, many friends, children from two up to the age of your your kids. It's that's all they want to do, and you know, parents are reluctant to do it. But then you get frustrated enough, and you just say, "Fine, take the iPad and watch the sh- the shows." And I get that, and we've done that too with a one year old. Occasionally, we try not to. Um, I, it's really tough because you can feel it. You can feel the exact same phenomenon building, and you see it with older kids. And I don't know about your children, but with video game addictions and, and kids that just sit there all day and that's all they want to do. Uh, and, and, you know, and I certainly did that as a kid too with, with 1980s Nintendo at times. But there is an argument that I guess with these modern video games, for example, you're, you are communicating with your friends. You're logged in with a group of friends. You're playing each other. Hopefully it's somewhat constructive game. And is that, does that form of socializing supplant the real organic socializing that our brains have evolved? to uh, to do and i don't think anyone really knows yet on the surface it doesn't seem like it could but some data suggests that you know it's it's not that bad as long as they're they're learning actual human interaction um and certainly covid threw a confounder into that because that was the only way to socialize so i i think it's probably too early to tell what sort of long-term effects that will have and will it develop into an actual later life addiction or does it signal later life addictions to drugs or to to wherever it may be or is it just normal childhood behavior i know a lot of my friends when i grew up would sit there and play nintendo for three hours if our parents let us but then we'd go outside and play sports and do all sorts of stuff at the same time so i yeah i honestly think and this is a a wishy-washy answer i think it's too early to tell how detrimental if if so it will be yeah. And this is just sort of, again, more anecdotal stuff. But, you know, my husband and I are also kids of the 80s. And we say, you know, there was television that was really directed to us as an audience for maybe two or three hours. So even if the TV was always on, it wasn't necessarily something we were interested in. These days, they can find their very specific niche toy opening videos and watch those for like 24 hours. And right. I'm looking. Well, yeah, we're, I feel like that's right around the corner for us, and I've seen again friends, ki- children do that, and that's a, a whole other thing. I mean, personally, I would say find a balance. I, I don't think, at least in my case, we want to restrict our daughter from from no screens whatsoever. Uh, you know, I think they can be constructive if they're watching the right thing, and but I also think maybe time restriction, make sure they're at least doing something outside. Um, I'm encouraging music because I, I like the music. Um, So we're balancing them, but it is scary when a one-year-old grabs our iPhone and somehow calls up a a video. (laughs) I'm sure it's it's accidental, but it's still, uh, it's coming. And it's, I have a COVID baby as well. So she just turned two. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. And it is very, I mean, exactly the swiping and the just like touching the screen as if you know what you're doing. It's just bananas. (laughs) Our baby turned on the TV the other day and somehow put on Ozark and we said, said, but this is, you're not, this is too advanced for you right now. We turned it off, but we don't know how she did it. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's funny. Like she, again, another aside it. So she picked up the remote and now you can talk to it. So she picks it up and she says, Elmo, Elmo. And it's just really scary. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a new world when our kids are fully grown up. But uh, but I don't. I'm not convinced that it's going to be detrimental. The same way that everyone was terrified of television and children in the 50s, and the same way video games in the 80s were vilified, and then the violent video games of the 90s, 2000s. 
I think that if you're prone to certain psychological states, that's that probably still outweighs these behaviors, these whether it's screens or video games. I think that we have to monitor them for sure and maybe limit them, but I don't think they're they're you know destroying a generation of children. Uh, I'm not that fearful of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you know, so that's interesting. So when we think about certain substances that you're addicted to, and in terms of treatment, there are treatments that target those receptors. Mm-hmm. How are we to think about it when we're trying to limit addiction to or address addiction to things like social media or screens? I know we don't have the full information yet, but just is it is that going to be more sort of group therapies and, and other sort of more psychological counseling um, type work? What are your thoughts on that? So as you as you fully know, there are there are drugs for opioid addiction, alcohol addiction that you know can block effects of certain addictive drugs. When it comes to more sort of behavioral addictions like that, I, I believe that many companies are actually working on dopamine-based therapies that just literally quell the reward response. So kids just won't want to do it. But that's going to be another discussion. Do we put you know children on a drug because they're playing too many video games that that potentially could have side effects worse than the video game? I think that will be a discussion in five or 10 years when these medications come closer to, uh, to being on the market. Um, but it, it definitely, I think, will be a, a pharmaceutical pursuit, at least in extreme cases. Uh, maybe if this has been a problem in certain other countries where, where children are, are so addicted, they just won't do anything else but, but game. And that I think it's now in the DSM-5 video game addiction when it's that extreme. It's, it's, a, it's got you know, an ICD-9 code. It's an official diagnosis. And I think in that case, down the road, maybe a medication could work just to kind of bring down that dopamine response a little bit. But again, I think there's a lot to know about these neurotransmitter networks. Um, like I said, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now about depression and how it's the saying that it's caused by low serotonin is so reductionist and just not correct. Uh, it might be one of many, many factors. I think that the dopamine theory of reward is much more sound because I do think dopamine is pretty powerful in the reward circuitry. But I think in a few years, we'll have a better idea of how these brain regions work together, what other neurotransmitters are involved. The amygdala, the brain region involved in emotion is, can often be involved in reward in terms of excitement and happiness. And you know that works with some other neurotransmitters at times. So it's, it's not as simple as just going after dopamine. But I think when, you, when it comes to developing drugs, you kind of have to have a clear focus, and it probably would be, well, dopamine-based therapies or dopaminergic therapies in the coming years for severe cases. I often hear my patients or people, you know, my friends will say, well, I just have an addictive personality, so I have to be really careful. Is that a thing, or are there certain risk factors that people have, and what are those that may make someone more prone to an addiction than another? I think it is a thing because if you look at people that are addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs, they also have other addictive behaviors. They might be really into overeating or to sex and gambling. These things often go hand in hand. And I, you know, in personal experience with friends, there are people that are like, oh, you want to overdo it with everything you do. Like you can't stop eating. You can't stop drinking. And I think that there probably is an innate sort of biological or genetic component to this where you just need that reward and it can be any any number of of possible rewards 
Um, and I also think probably social environmental influences, if you grew up with trauma or around a certain situation or with an alcoholic, you might be more prone to either avert yourself from that or go all in. And uh, so I think it's probably a combination of a genetic predisposition to these behaviors, whether it's alcohol or drugs or video games, but also your environmental upbringing and you know the, the environment around you and they come together like so many things it's 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 probably both yeah multifactorial for sure and so i think it kind of goes back to the idea of mindfulness knowing that identifying that as something or having that insight about yourself to help protect you from these types of behaviors or this type of yeah yeah i i think and that and that's what's so tricky right to to be mindful of ourselves and understand to one, recognize what our flaws might be or what our addictions might be and, you know, sort of go through the uh, psychological exercise of first acknowledging that, oh, like this, I might be suffering from this or I might be a little too, you know, even not, if not addicted, a little too drawn to something that down the road could be a problem. And then first acknowledge it and then maybe see a therapist and then, uh, you know, ex, you know, kind of just work on it and 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 chip away at that because you know we all probably have these tendencies in one in one way or another, and that's fine. That's just human nature. Um, but just kind of keep check on them uh, and just make sure they don't get too out of control. If you're prone to this sort of addictive behavior, uh, you know, that's it can be a lifelong, mindful checking in with yourself, which is hard to do. But you know, luckily this is much more part of the conversation now in medicine is mindfulness and meditation and really trying to live in the moment and understanding what I'm feeling right now. And I think that gives us some action to take as carers of, you know, children or the next generation or being the guardian of someone where you're, you may potentially see that or identify that tendency. And so helping develop strategies, like you said, it's a balance. It's really hard to just fully restrict anything without having other consequences. So really sort of identifying that and then and that gives you something actionable to do for someone you love. Yeah. And that's, that's something that a lot of us, myself included, are always working on trying to, to understand why am I feeling this way? Like what can I what can I do about it? But accepting that I'm feeling this way, whether it's bad, good, or I want to eat too much uh, you know, too too many pizzas out of my new pizza oven. Uh, <laughs> um, you have a pizza oven. <laughs> got a pizza oven for Father's Day. Yeah. Oh, it's wow. uh, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's just a matter of checking in with yourself and uh, and it's hard to have self-awareness. I think that's sort of the goal with mindfulness, right, is to understand what I'm feeling in the moment and uh, accepting it. So as the author of A History of the Human Brain, I'd like you to write your next book on the future of the human brain. So <laughs> tell, where are we going? You you told us about, you know, some of the potential advances in in treatments. What else are you thinking about or... Uh, thinking through as potential treatments or way to manage addiction? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I hinted that in my the last chapter of my book, um, I, and I wasn't planning on a sequel. It wasn't a Back to the Future to be continued scenario. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, a lot of what has to do with the future of the brain involves, and this is totally related to addiction, but of course, um, AI, artificial intelligence, is, is a big question. And how that can be used as medicine um, for in, in neurology or in psychiatry, um, and also how, as we as we touched on, how this new digital culture and this new virtual form of communication will 
influence society. I mean, I write a lot about how one of the pillars of, of primate evolution and human evolution was really, you know, socializing. Where primates are social creatures, monk, from monkeys to other apes, chimps and bonobos. That's sort of a, a core, you know, tenet of our of our being. Um, and so, when that goes virtual, that's a huge question in the future in terms of, of treatment, and and that will, I assume, spill over into addiction as people become addicted to social media and online communication and. Um, and I do think, like you hinted at, aside from potential medications, we're going to have to have a, a discussion about it, whether that's psychotherapy or group discussions. Um, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be a helpful part of, of that. Um, so I think the brain is going to, you know, it's going to evolve culturally a lot faster than it's evolving biologically. It still is evolving biologically, but, you know, as you know, biological evolution is an incredibly slow process and culture is infinitely faster. So I think it's going to be managing just technology and information and how we communicate it all because we're, we're getting this deluge of information more so than we've ever had in the history of, of mankind, animal kind, any kind. And uh, it's, uh, it's, but we're processing it with an ancient organ that has been evolving for millions of years. And we just can't handle it all. As we all probably know from our email inboxes, like it's not going to be tenable. We're going to have to figure out a way to to step back from trying to process all of this information because it's it's literally driving us all to anxiety sometimes, I feel like, and that's not a good thing. And so, yeah, I think it will be social interventions, behavioral interventions, and maybe the occasional medication in severe cases, uh, hopefully. Yeah. This has really been so fascinating. I've learned a lot from my own personal life and my daughter is in trouble when I go home today. <laughs> Please don't blame me. <laughs> um, anything I missed? Anything you'd like to share that I didn't ask you about? Uh, no, I think that the, this was a very fun conversation. I mean, it's such a, a rich area and I think that still we we really don't understand how these disorders of the brain truly work. I mean, we have we have ideas, we have hints that this or that, this neurotransmitter might be involved and they probably are, but I think you know, maybe a take home is to think about these the, the disorders like addiction or depression. These are so complex. They involve so many probably genes, neurotransmitters, environmental influences that we're a long way from actually understanding them. But I think it's a fascinating area and we're, we're getting there and there are good treatments. And I think it'll be both exciting and potentially unnerving to see how this plays out with uh, the future of sort of human interaction and, and how that plays into addiction as well. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I'm internal medicine, but also lifestyle medicine. And one of the things that you said really is just that it's so many inputs and it's multifactorial in terms of creating a problem that the solution is also going to be multifactorial. It's not going to be a pill for an ill. It's really going to be all of these things together. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I'll, I, I recently talked to a psychiatrist a couple of days ago, and he made a great point that if you look at something like depression, he didn't even, he doesn't consider it a, a disorder. He considers it an end stage or a symptom of any kind of trauma to the brain. And that could be genetic, that could be a virus, that could be any, any number of things. And I feel like in the future, that's how we'll think of mental illness as, as not an illness, but a result of any number of causes, at least for a particular ones. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you, Dia. This was fascinating. And thank you again for, uh, for having me on. This was fun. 
Dr. Brett Stecka is Editorial Director at Medscape Neurology and Medscape Psychiatry. He also freelances for Scientific American and NPR. He's author of A History of the Human Brain. Thanks for listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bhatta, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine, and I want you to be happy, healthy, and here for our latest episodes. So follow us on your favorite podcast app. See you next time.